Radio Derb is on the air. That was a snippet of Haydn's Derbyshire March number no. 2, played by organist Peter Gould on the fine old organ of Derby Cathedral. This is, of course, your cerebrally genial host, John Derbyshire, with VDare.com's random selections for commentary from the week's news. With regard to the war between Russia and Ukraine, I can think of nothing to say that I haven't already said. It's a pretty good life rule that, when you have nothing to say, you should say nothing. So, I shall follow that rule. Although, if you listen carefully, the word Ukraine does show up later in the podcast in a different context. Similarly with this week's great movie anniversary, the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. There is no lack of interest in my part here. I agree wholeheartedly with the general opinion that The Godfather was a very good movie indeed, a small masterpiece of American culture. After half a century, though, everything that can be said about it has been said. I have nothing to add. And movie-wise, someone just reminded me that later this year, in October, I think, there comes the 60th anniversary of the first James Bond movie. There have been a lot more Bond movies than Godfather movies, and I have a few months to prepare, so I shall try to think of something pithy to say about that. Unless I forget. Enough of this inconsequential rambling. What's been going on? Confirmation theatre, that's what. The Senate Judiciary Committee, as I'm sure you know, has been holding confirmation hearings for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the President's nominee, to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer in October. I can't say I've followed the hearings closely, or at all, really, my long-standing opinion, which I enlarged on here a few weeks ago, is that Supreme Court justices are not chosen for their wisdom or learning. They are chosen for political acceptability. That favours mediocrities. And mediocrities is mostly what we get. Our political establishment does not want anyone with an interesting mind on the court. They made that most vividly plain in the case of Robert Bork. So, these Judiciary Committee hearings usually consist of mediocrities interrogating a mediocrity, with the result a foregone conclusion anyway. Republican Senates voting to confirm Republican nominees, Democrats, Democrats. From scattered things I had read about Judge Jackson, I figured 
her hearing would not be one of the exceptions. So I watched reruns of Two Broke Girls instead. However, browsing my Breakfast Time New York Post on Wednesday, I did spot the episode where Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee asked Judge Jackson, quote, Can you provide a definition for the word woman? End quote. After some brief toing and froing, the judge replied, quote, Not in this context. I'm not a biologist. End quote. Judge Jackson came in for much mockery over that. My favourite among the mockers, I think it was everybody's favourite, was the British lady who fielded the same question by saying, I'm not a vet, but I know what a dog is. Tucker Carlson tracked that lady down and gave her a spot on his show Thursday evening. Her name is Kelly J. Keane. In all fairness to Judge Jackson, there's more to be said than that. She was asked for a definition, and that is indeed a matter of biology. Kelly J. Keene knows what a dog is, but can she actually provide a definition for the word dog? One of my schoolmasters told us that the great 18th century lexicographer Samuel Johnson, in his magisterial dictionary of the English language, defined dog as, quote, a familiar quadruped. That is not actually true. The first folio edition of Johnson's Dictionary is online, and I checked. The first meaning under dog is, quote, a domestic animal remarkably various in his species, comprising the mastiff, the spaniel, the bulldog, the greyhound, the hound, the terrier, the cur, with many others. End quote. With all proper respect to the learned Dr. Johnson, I don't think that's even a definition in the strict sense, only a description. I guess I could pursue the matter by looking up Johnson's definitions of the words definition and description. But I've been down enough rabbit holes in my life and I don't feel like going down another one. Digging around idly, taking care to avoid rabbit holes, I see that my schoolmaster had only misplaced his source by a few years. A lexicographer of the generation before Johnson a chap named Nathaniel Bailey, actually did define the word dog as a quadruped well-known. What was Dr. Johnson's definition of the word woman? Here it is, quote, The female of the human race. End quote. 
If Dr Johnson had offered that definition to Senator Blackburn, I suspect she would have asked him to define female. Knowing the good doctor's low level of tolerance for imbeciles with important titles, I'm pretty sure he would have stormed out of the hearing at that point, perhaps having first hurled a copy of his dictionary at Senator Blackburn's head. All right, but what about Judge Jackson? Is she any good? in any respect at all? Considered just as a human being, she seems pretty normal. She's been married to the same guy for 26 years, a white guy, and they have two kids. In the normality ranking, that puts her out ahead of cat ladies Eleanor Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. And, so far as I can gather, Judge Jackson is an ADOS, an A-D-O-S, an American descendant of slaves, not an exotic black like Barack Obama or Kamala Harris. So, points for normality. How about smarts? Well, as mentioned in the previous segment, I don't expect smart nominees to the Supreme Court, although it occasionally happens by accident. Of the current court, Alito and Thomas strike me as decently smart. They got through the sieve somehow. People tell me that Eleanor Kagan, aside from the cats, is pretty intelligent. But, never having read any of her opinions, I'll have to take that on faith. That's two or three out of nine, which is as good as it gets. I doubt Ketanji Brown Jackson's confirmation will raise the court's mean IQ. Any black, of course, comes under suspicion as an affirmative action hire. And as VDare.com's own correspondent, Federale, wrote in a blistering piece on March the 6th, Judge Jackson's score on the law school admissions test is a closely guarded state secret. So, like Obama, this is a person who has been wafted up into the ruling class on warm thermals of race favouritism. And as well as having benefited herself from race favouritism, there are signs she has been practising it. Republican members of the Judiciary Committee have been making much of the very lenient sentences she has approved for defendants in child pornography cases. Our own James Fulford went digging into one of those cases, the most discussed one, in which Judge Jackson ignored the 8 to 10 years federal sentencing guidelines and gave the guy three months instead. It turned out the defendant was black. So what we have here is likely 
not Judge Jackson failing to take Kitty Porn seriously. It's Judge Jackson showing partiality to black perps. Might Republican committee members explore that aspect of the issue? Hello? Oh, that's funny. They've all dived under their desks. As Federale also points out, for a member of a profession that is supposed to take the utmost care with words, Judge Jackson doesn't. In a 2019 ruling on an immigration case, she used the expression undocumented non-citizens in place of illegal aliens. That isn't just clunky and euphemistic, it's inexcusably wrong. As Federale explains, quote, the correct legal term for any person not a citizen or national of the United States is alien, not non-citizen, as there are persons who are nationals of the United States, but not citizens. Those persons, generally persons born or naturalized in American Samoa, and the Swains Islands, those persons are non-citizens, but they are nationals of the United States, have almost all the rights and privileges of citizens, but not all rights and privileges, yet are not aliens. End quote. So, you can be a United States national without being a United States citizen. I will confess I did not know that. You may think that for me, a commentator on an immigration restrictionist website, not to know that fact is shameful or disappointing or perhaps pardonable. Wherever you stand on that, you have to admit that for a U.S. District Court judge not to know it, and to expose her ignorance for the world to see when writing her opinion on an immigration case, is outrageous. Judge Jackson compounded the offence by including, in the very same sentence, the precious little cant phrase, lived experiences. And yes, of course, she is a cultural Marxist. No surprise there. To a good first approximation, all educated black Americans are cultural Marxists. So, I don't expect anything good to come from Judge Jackson's confirmation, which will of course happen. The most I hope for is that we may perhaps get some discussion going about the degree to which we have allowed these Kreitarchs to take on so much power. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Article 3 of the Constitution clearly gives Congress the last word on radical legislative changes. If the people want 
affirmative action or same-sex marriage or legalized abortion, let them instruct their representatives accordingly and vote them out if they don't cooperate. It's not for judges to impose such things. The problem is that Congress doesn't want to fulfil its responsibilities. It's as loath to restrain the judiciary as it is to restrain the executive. We are coming up to the 80th anniversary of Congress declaring war on Bulgaria, June 5th, 1942. That was the last time Congress declared war on any nation. Yet we seem to have fought a great many wars in the interim. Our Congress may be shirking its constitutional duties, but never let it be said the Congress critters sit around idle. Not at all. They keep themselves busy. Last Friday, for example, the House of Representatives passed the Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act. This is one of those dumb acronyms. C-R-O-W-N-H spells crown, you see? Well, actually it doesn't, not with that H at the end there. But... As the Duke told the King in Huckleberry Finn, quote, These country jakes won't ever think of that. End quote. So, what does it do, this Crown huh, Act? Allow the lead sponsor of the bill, Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey, to explain. Quote, there are folks in this society who think because your hair is kinky, it is braided, it is in knots, or it is not straightened, blonde and light brown, that you somehow are not worthy of access. End quote. Apparently there was a case four years ago of a high school wrestler being forced to cut his dreadlocks or forfeit his match. He was, of course, black. Referring to that case, Representative Coleman gushed that, quote, This bill is vitally important. It's important to the young girls and the young boys who have to cut their hair in the middle of a wrestling match in front of everyone because some white referee says that your hair is inappropriate to engage in your match. End quote. Vitally important. So important it needs federal legislation. Foreigners are pouring unchecked across our borders. Our own tech workers are being laid off so their jobs can be given to cheaper guest workers from abroad. Our big city police forces have been stood down so that criminals can roam free. The annual inflation rate is heading for 10%. We're begging for oil from the Russians, the Iranians and the Arabs, having shut down our own production from plain spite. But banning discrimination based on hairstyle 
is vitally important. All 221 Democrats present voted for this Crown huh, Act, along with, wait for it, 14 Republicans. It now goes to the Senate, who I am sure will give it their most earnest consideration and pass it, with support from the usual GOP suspects. Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Ben Sass, Susan Collins, and so on. President Biden has already said he'll sign it. Several states and other jurisdictions, including New York City, have already banned hairstyle discrimination. Apparently that's not enough. Congress believes this issue needs national legislation. I await the call for a constitutional amendment. That issue about defining what is a woman has come to the fore recently because of this competition swimmer guy, Leah Thomas, pretending to be a girl so he can win medals. Some of the consequences in this case have been positively Soviet. Here's a headline from Fox News, March 22nd. Headline. Women's advocacy groups silent on transgender swimmer Leah Thomas's domination at NCAA championships. Why are they silent? Why do you think? They're scared. They know that anyone who speaks up will suffer consequences. Other swimmers will, of course, lose their place on competition teams. But non-swimmers, too, will meet the wrath of the woke establishment. You could lose your Twitter account, your job, even your bank account. You could be branded for all time on the social media databases as a hateful hater filled with hate. As somewhat of a connoisseur in the matter of Chinese idioms and allusions, I know exactly where I am here. I told you all about it in my monthly diary for December 2020. Permit me to tell you again. If you know anything at all about ancient Chinese history, you know about Qin Shi Huangdi who founded a dynasty in 221 BC and called himself First Emperor. That's what Shi Huangdi means. This emperor, of course, had a staff of senior officials to run the empire. And these senior officials, of course, schemed among themselves for advantage. The most ambitious of these schemers was a fellow, well, actually a, a eunuch, named Zhao Gao. When the emperor died, Zhao Gao saw the chance to seize supreme power for himself. The succession should have gone to the emperor's oldest son, whom the emperor himself had favoured. But there was bad blood 
between Zhao Gao and this oldest son. So Zhao Gao got rid of him by a trick and enthroned the emperor's younger son as second emperor. Second emperor was none too bright, and that suited Zhao Gao just fine. Manoeuvring behind the scenes, he gathered up more and more power to himself, with second emperor as a mere figurehead, a puppet emperor. Zhao Gao's ultimate ambition was to put himself on the imperial throne, but he knew that some of the senior officials would oppose him. He therefore devised a stratagem. Here comes the story. I'll give it to you straight from the Chinese historian who first recorded it. Story. One day, Zhao Gao presented a deer to Second Emperor. Pointing to the deer, he said, I offer your majesty this horse. Second Emperor laughed and said, Is the Prime Minister joking with me? This is plainly a deer. How can you say it's a horse? Zhao Gao replied earnestly, Who would dare play a joke on His Majesty? It's clear this is a horse. If you don't believe it, ask the others. Second Emperor thereupon asked the ministers present, Is this actually a deer or a horse? Those ministers who were trusted followers or toadies of Zhao Gao all said it was a horse. Some others who feared Zhao Gao's power and influence also said it was a horse. Of the few honest ministers, some were silent, but a few insisted that it was in fact a deer. Zhao Gao inwardly noted the names of those honest ministers. Later, he found a pretext to have them all killed. End story. This story is known as Call a Deer a Horse. Ever since the story was recorded, that phrase, Call a Deer a Horse, has been used as an idiom applicable when those in power make you assent to ridiculous falsehoods for fear of the consequences if you don't. That's what political power can do, if you have enough of it. 207 BC, call a deer a horse. AD 2022, call a man a woman. Does anything ever change? A couple of items on the demography front. Working this beat a couple of podcasts ago, I included the following about China. Mrs. Derbyshire, who is plugged into Chinese social media, reports... 
that a common lament from our old high school and college classmates is that their kids, who are now in their late 20s and early 30s, have no interest in starting families. Shall I ever be a grandmother? The classmates moan. Well, here's confirmation of that. South China Morning Post. That's an English-language Hong Kong newspaper. March 20th. Headline. Marriage on the rocks in China as women rethink their options and COVID-19 limits take toll. Subheading. In 2021, the lowest number of couples tied the knot since records began in 1986. Sample quote from a Chinese demographer. In a Communist Youth League survey of unmarried urban residents aged 18 to 26 in October, 43.9% of women respondents said they either had no intention of getting married or were unsure if it would happen. That was 19.3 percentage points higher than the unmarried male respondents. End quote. Demographers predict that China is entering a period of negative population growth nine years earlier than forecasts by the State Council's National Population Development Plan. Oh, here's another story, also from East Asia. MercatorNet.com, March 21st. Headline, South Korea, the world's worst birth dearth. Subheading, on their way to oblivion. The story here is a new batch of statistics from the South Korean government demographers. Remember that for a stable population, neither increasing nor decreasing, and ignoring immigration and emigration, you need a total fertility rate of 2.1 children per woman. South Korea's TFR for the year 2021 was 0.81. That is quite sensationally low, and it marks South Korea's fourth straight year of less than 1.0 fertility. Yep, on their way to oblivion. I've done this before, but it bears doing again. Here are the 10 highest and 10 lowest nations listed by total fertility rate in the World Bank Population Review. 10 highest. Niger, Somalia, Congo, Mali, Chad, Angola, Burundi, Nigeria, Gambia, Burkina Faso. 10 lowest from the lowest. South Korea, Puerto Rico, Hong Kong, Malta, Singapore, Macau, Ukraine, Spain, Bosnia-Herzegovina, 
San Marino. I'm pretty sure that Taiwan should be in there with the lowest, but probably the World Bank doesn't want to tick off the Chicoms by listing Taiwan separately. Demography-wise, the later 21st century is going to be interesting. I'm sure the Nigerian, Somalian and Congolese historians of the 22nd century will get many, many PhD theses out of it. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. There are no companies on earth more woke than the big Silicon Valley software giants. And among them, none is more woke than Google. A whistleblower told Breitbart News back in 2017 that senior leaders at Google, quote, focus on diversity first and technology second, end quote. A problem there is that in the work at the heart of these firms' business models, writing software, some races perform much better than others. East Asians do it best, with whites and South Asians considerably behind. Not many blacks can do it to a high standard. So there's been a contradiction lurking there, waiting to explode. Well, it may have exploded. Breitbart reports, March 21st, that a black female employee is suing Google for engaging in systemic racism against her. The lady alleges, inter alia, that Google has, quote, Never, and I mean f***ing never, end quote, hired a student from a historically black college into a tech role. She has hired master race grievance attorney Benjamin Crump to represent her, so this should be a real circus show. Break out the popcorn. Item. There is definitely something strange going on with the Derbyshires and the Brimelows. Some weird consonances. I noted back in my diary for October 2018 that when I got my DNA results back from 23andMe, listed among my third to fifth cousins was John Brimelow, Peter Brimelow's twin brother. Now, this week, here was Peter Brimelow posting a lovely picture of his mother on Twitter. The lady is no longer among us, but Tuesday, March 21st, was her birthday. She was born, Peter tells us, on March 21st, 1921. As it happens, this week was also my mother's birthday although she, too, is no longer with us. My mum was born March 22nd, 1912. She would have been 110 years old on Wednesday. 
If those two beautiful English ladies still exist somewhere, in some shape or form, I hope they can get together and enjoy a merry chuckle over the fact that their two sons are now both American and are both busy trying to do something positive for the USA. Item. One of the problems with exponents of critical race theory and the associated field, or subfield, don't ask me, of whiteness studies... One of the problems is figuring out when they are actual human beings trying to tell you something that they think is important and when they are spoofers sending up the whole racket. I was just looking at an article in a science journal that left me uncertain. Name of the journal? Physical Review Physics Education Research published by the American Physical Society. So this is a journal for professionals in physics education. Name of the article? Observing Whiteness in Introductory Physics, a Case Study. At the risk of triggering cerebral aneurysms in people who like physics and think it's interesting, I am going to read you the entire abstract of the article. You might want to sit down for this. Here we go. Quote, Within whiteness, the organisation of social life is in terms of a centre and margins that are based on dominance, control and a transcendent figure that is consistently and structurally ascribed value over and above other figures. In this paper we synthesise literature from critical whiteness studies and critical race theory to articulate analytic markers for whiteness and use the markers to identify and analyse whiteness as it shows up in an introductory physics classroom interaction. We name mechanisms that facilitate the reproduction of whiteness in this local context, including a particular representation of energy, physics values, whiteboards, gendered social norms, and the structure of schooling. In naming whiteness and offering a set of analytic markers, our aim is to provide instructors and researchers with a tool for identifying whiteness in their own contexts. Alongside our discussion, which imagines new possibilities for physics teaching and learning, we hope our work contributes to Critical Whiteness Studies' goal of dismantling whiteness. End quote. Either that is some Babylon B employee in his lunch break having a little fun with the American Physical Society, or the named authors Amy D. Robertson and W. Tally Hairston need intensive interventions from trained psychiatrists. Item. 
Is Homo sapiens an argumentative species, or what? We just love to take sides. Here is the latest controversy, sundering lifelong friendships, setting brother against brother and neighbour against neighbour. Here it is. Listen up. Are there more doors in the world, or more wheels? Some fellow on Twitter ran one of those online polls. Respondents split 46% for doors, 54% for wheels. That inspired a user of TikTok, whatever that is, to work the math, based on what he said were reasonable assumptions. He came up with 145 billion doors to a mere 68 billion wheels. A clear victory for doors. Team Wheels were outraged by that and fought back vigorously on TikTok, challenging the methodology of the Team Doors guy. As Radio Derb goes to tape, the dispute still rages hot. I understand the United Nations has a team of peacekeepers at the ready in case open war breaks out. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. That's all I have, ladies and gents. Thank you for listening and for your many kind words and contributions. The rule on incoming email remains everything non-abusive is read, pondered, and, when suitable, plagiarised. I hope I may be excused a small personal note for this week's sign-off. Along with the anniversaries aforenoted, this week marks the Derbyshire's 30th year in our house. We were brought out here from our previous habitation, a tiny apartment in New York City, in a van driven by a Chinese guy Mrs. Derbyshire had hired, with all our belongings stuffed in the van and our mattress tied to the roof. March 22nd, 1992. We've been very happy here. We love our house. We love our neighbours. Well, most of them. We love our neighbourhood and our town. We have no desire to live anywhere else. We have raised two kids here and enjoyed the loving companionship of three dogs. The house itself is not far from its centenary. It was built in 1927 by a Swedish fellow named Albert Peterson. First he built the standalone garage out back. Then he moved his family in there and lived there while he built the house. I've left some of his original wallpaper preserved in one corner of the garage. When we moved here 30 years ago, some of the oldest neighbours remembered Albert. They called him Poppy. So, thanks, Poppy, for the house we love. Thanks also to my clever wife who found it. She was the search committee, while I toiled full-time in Manhattan.
So much to be thankful for. Life is good. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Who live on the hill?